from Green Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at the Verge 2017 conference at the Santa Clara Convention Center in the heart of Silicon Valley. On this week's edition, it's the Voices of Verge, Green Jobs Not Jails, What Does 100% Renewable Energy Actually Mean, Getting From Here to Circularity, and the musical wisdom of DJ Spooky. They're playing our tune this week on 350. It's September 22nd, 2017. Welcome to this special edition of Green Biz 350 from Verge 2017. I'm Joel McCower, and here with me, not on Skype, not on the phone, in the room, is Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Actually, yes, about two feet away from you, and uh, great to be here in person with you, Joel, for a change. Always great to be up close and personal. You know, these these uh, podcasts that we do from our events are always so interesting and so uh, special, uh, partly because we're exhausted after three days. We're recording this on uh, Thursday afternoon, just as the event is, is ending. So we're a little bit, you know, we're running on fumes, but also the exhilaration of, of a great, great event. We had uh, over 2,000 people come. It started off uh, Sunday evening with a reception and Monday morning with a, a meeting of uh, of REBA, the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance. We'll talk about that uh, with Heather in a minute. It continued on Tuesday with uh, the, ma- the main stage and the workshops and the summit. We'll talk about summits in a little bit with Shauna Rappaport. And you will hear in this episode some of the voices of Verge, some of the people we had on stage, Van Jones, Lisa Jackson, uh, a number of others. Uh, too numerous to mention. Um, Heather, how are you doing? I'm great. And to the too numerous to mention point, I think the toughest thing about putting an episode like this together is that there's so much great content to work with and so many inspirational thoughts. And we're trying to distill it for you um, for the for the Friday wrap up, but uh, plenty more trends and, and issues and, and wonderful innovations to report on in the weeks to come. And before we get to the great, great content, I just want to give a shout out to the great, great Greenbiz team. In the run-up to an event like this, um, people often ask me, what are you excited about? What are you looking forward to at, at Verge? And for me, you know, I said, well, there's a lot of great speakers. I'm looking forward to some of the conversations I'll be having on stage with some really cool people. But for me, the real joy of these events is putting them on and watching our team execute. We have this amazing group of people who, uh, some behind the scenes, some will never be in, even in the room, let alone on the stage. And they do it with such professionalism, such humanity, such joy. And then they go out and party and dance all night long and they do it again the next day. And I just want to give a shout out to, to uh, first of all, my partners, Pete May and Eric Farrow, and, and then all the things that they make happen that allow Heather and me to be on stage and uh, you know sharing the love uh, with the audience. So as I said, this began with Reba on Sunday night and Monday and Tuesday morning, the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance. This is a group of, of 400 or so uh, renewable energy buyers and sellers coming together to really help uh, advance the, the state of the art. Heather, you were there for, for much of it. You uh, moderated the closing panel. Give us a sense of, of the zeitgeist. Uh, renewable energy feels like this is one of the positive trends. It's really moving forward. Is that how it felt in the room? 
Absolutely. There were so many uh, signs of progress from coming from the participants in the room. First of all, I mean, 400, 400 or so uh, people in the room um, and starting with 12 just four years ago. So the fact that there are so many uh, organizations involved in this dialogue, there were a ton of utilities in the room, uh, about 50 of them. And that is such an important uh, constituent in this discussion. Without innovations on their side, there's no way that corporate buyers, corporate renewables buyers can actually make the goals that they want. There's, there's not every market is deregulated. There's, there's only 12 or so um, states that have green tariffs, which, you know, provide a vehicle on the regulated side. But um, it was awesome to see so many utilities participating. And then actually many of them flowed over into Verge. I spoke with Letha Tawney. She's the director of utility innovation and the Polsky chair for renewable energy at WRI, the World Resources Institute, um, and uh, here's what she had to say about collaboration and how to talk to utilities. So I think there's a sense that you're going to have to threaten the utility to get them to listen, and maybe that's the case for some utilities, but I've seen a real transition in the sector over the last two years. The ones that are at the forefront have figured out these are customers, even if it's a monopoly quote-unquote ratepayer sort of model, they have to compete. And they are trying to figure out how to do that. They've never had to before. They've never been allowed to really compete with their customer before. Um, they're not allowed to offer differentiated products. They're trying to figure out how to do it. And that, I think that open, honest conversation that tries to rebuild trust, that asks good questions is really a good place to start. I thought, you know, I, we uh, heard from Kirk at REI today talking about, I asked the simple questions early. And it gives folks an opportunity to think about, oh, there might be a different way to solve this. What's going to get their attention is not, I'm going to take my load away. What's going to get their attention is, I understand that you are stuck with a whole lot of assets. I want to do some transitioning how can we do this together in a constructive way? Because at the end of the day, we want investable utilities that can raise cheap capital. We need them if we're going to do this enormously capital-intensive transition. We need somebody who's bankable. And I think it's important, uh, having heard from Letha, to uh, explain that, that REBA is sort of remarkable in and of itself in that it's a partnership of four NGOs. I mean, that just doesn't happen. This is the uh, BSR. Uh, the World Resources Institute, WWF, and the Rocky Mountain Institute, and them coming together and agreeing to have this, you know, pool their resources, pool their constituencies, pool the funding, um, that hasn't been happening enough, and it's really a refreshing part of this. And, and I think it's the spirit of that, that that permeated REBA. So, Heather, you know, how did it come together? So, first of all, I, I do want to say that, actually, there are plenty of alliances. There are not all that many effective alliances, which makes this particular organization all that more intriguing. As far as the, um, the things that I, I, I love the fact that I was there because basically I know what I'm writing about for the next 12 months. <laughs> and uh, there were several themes that, that emerged for me uh, in the zeitgeist of the event that are important for the future. First of all, uh, in no particular order, international markets, you know, how do we enable corporations, multinationals to buy, procure clean energy, clean renewable energy uh, outside of the United States in places like Mexico, India, China, 
there are all sorts of dialogues emerging around that. Not a lot of answers, but uh, definitely a point of interest for the, the participants that were there, there at the event. Also, the, the idea of aggregation of, of uh, deals that syndicate buyers so that the next level, the next tier, the Fortune 1000, the, the mid-sized companies that don't have an, a dedicated energy department, it may not have the, the energy load, the electricity load to influence a change in policy or influence uh, certain types of pricing or certain uh, changes in business model. And then finally, one of the themes that really intrigued me was the fact that we, we need to stop thinking about renewable energy as just electricity. There are loads in the manufacturing environment, things like thermal for, for cleaning equipment, for processing, smelting. I, we, we, when we were listening to Lisa Jackson uh, present, she mentioned smelting and the process of that. So there's just all these there's sources of fuel that are not electricity, and that needs to be addressed. And in the REBA group has started a new initiative called the Renewable Thermal Collaborative that's going to explore these issues. Not surprisingly, there were five manufacturers that were behind the, the, the genesis of that, including Mars, Cargill, um, General Motors, the folks at Kimberly-Clark, and... Um, also Procter and Gamble, so they, they were all—they're all instrumental in helping get this off the ground. As is, there was a city too, the city of Philadelphia, because cities have a lot of buildings that are um, heated and cooled by natural gas as a source. So that you know that that will be a big theme as we see more cities try to get 100% renewable. So I, I had a chance to speak with uh, Rob Threlkeld, the general manager of energy of, at General Motors, and here's ha what he had to say about the importance of this particular. Focus. Well, just as we came together to really push the, the electricity side of it and then the RE100 and the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance, it became very apparent to, a, to a several companies to look at the thermal load of that. I mean, we don't just want to be 100% on the electricity, we want to be 100% all encompassing. And we've had a long history in that space, uh, looking at our landfill gas projects dating back into the 90s, and we felt joining the Renewable Thermal Coalition, taking our experience uh, and using landfill gas uh, as another way to elevate the industry and look at pragmatic ways to really drive the thermal side of the business as well, along with the electricity side of the business. You know, when you really do look at renewable thermal, it more is more of a local problem. But when you also think about it, there are engineering solutions. So how do you then potentially electrify a thermal source? And then how that electricity then can be sourced from renewables. So there are some ways to look at this in a, in a holistic manner. But in some of these, there are local solutions. When you think that landfill gas, you really need to be close to the landfills. You're not going to pipe landfill gas for 10 and tens and tens of miles it's going to be a mile or two just like we have in some of our facilities so it's a local but there are also broader solutions to the overall electricity part so does it feel like they've got the answers and it's just kind of rinse and repeat you kind of keep moving forward and doing more of what you're already doing or are they still missing pieces this will never be a rinse and repeat process uh, every state is different every market is different and uh, Yes, people are sharing best practices. Yes, people are getting certain parts of the process more buttoned down. Uh, it's taking uh, less time to figure out where to go for, for these deals, how to procure. Like the, the vehicle, the marketplace is, 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 is emerging around how to do this. The big wild card and an obstacle remains regulation. It remains the policies in different markets. And there's certain places where it's just almost darn impossible to, to actually procure renewable energy. And that's why you see so many people doing the virtual power purchase agreements outside of their market, or even in some cases, the great, the great term that came up was Rexit. 
right? So leaving your utility because um, you cannot get what you need. A renewable energy exit is that or exit, right? Yep. Thanks to Brexit for uh, that fun term. But, you know, so again, it will never be rinse and repeat. Um, the answers are, are, aren't all there, but this community ask, is asking the right questions. They're working together and they are taking action. So a lot of collaboration, a lot of solutions, uh, some big needs in more technologies, more policies, uh, more collaboration, and more and more and more. It kind of sounds like sustainability in general. So uh, that's a good thing because we're moving forward. Thanks for that, Heather. So now we're going to offer you some voices of Verge, just some clips that uh, we liked uh, from the past several days. Um, and Heather, you were nice enough to take some of your spare time this week <laughs> ha, 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 and uh, ha, ha. put together some of the clips that, that you liked that you, you and I talked about. Um, what are we going to hear? So, yeah, I, I sat there in the, in the main stage and just kind of let it all wash over me. And there were, there were actually dozens of comments during the event that, that I took some inspiration from, but uh, there's about, there were, you know, three or four that I just wanted to highlight, and we'll probably highlight way more in the next couple of podcasts. Um, and I'm going to start with, um, you know, the, the idea that we should embrace the hope around this, right? We were just talking about optimism and what's the zeitgeist, and, you know, do we promote and progress this movement from a position of fear, like, do this or else, or do we say, this is the opportunity, this is the, you know, the human's the humans in the room here, if you will, have an opportunity to collaborate with nature. And the, the speaker that started us off at Verge, David McConville, the board co-chair for um, the Buckminster Fuller Institute, he just, I, I walked away from that session thinking, ah, yes. There's hope. There's hope. And um, here's, here's some comments on hope. I think that these projects are showing us that we as a species, humanity, can be a beneficial keystone species. We don't actually have to be doomed, but we have to evolve the way that we think about sustainability. That it's not just about sequestering carbon and increasing more energy efficiency, as critical as that is. We actually have to learn to be much better at collaborating with the most evolutionarily advanced technologies there are that we happen to call ecosystems. We didn't invent them, so we don't tend to think of them as technologies, but they are absolutely extraordinary in what they do. They've had a long time to work out the bugs, right? And we often just sort of ignorantly call them nature and take them for granted. But to do this, I think it's really critical that we start by regenerating the way that we think about our own potential to heal our relationship to the world and to each other. One of the things I've been thinking about quite a deal is, is China. Yeah. Right? So... Um, just where does what role does China play? Does China become the leader now that the U.S. is at the federal level abdicating? Abdicating, um, and I, I wasn't really looking for this information um, in the sessions, if you will. But I was really struck by um, some comments that Danny Kennedy um, made during during his uh, session. He's the the president of the California Clean Energy Fund, and he did a terrific panel right towards the beginning of the of the conference on on the progress on the on the movement. And he made a point of of, of pointing to China, and um, 
talking about what's going on there, it, it, the, the, the stat that really blew me away is, is, is this year, the entire year, so nine months, uh, this, the corporate movement has installed about two gigawatts of, of clean energy. So the, the corporate sector has helped inspire but um, how much? I mean, do you know how to compare that to what's happened in the U.S. So, so far? in 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 U.S., that's that's actually that is more than last year. We just surpassed that with a, a good big uh, 200 megawatt um, power purchase agreement by by General Motors announced this week. So that that's better than last year, but that is dwarfed by the amount of of energy that uh, China clean energy that China is installing just every month. And so I just was really struck by uh, this comment from Danny Kennedy, and here is um, something he had to say towards the end of his panel. I just flew in from China where I had the privilege of speaking at this thing called the Mass Entrepreneurship and Innovation Festival, literally. It was a week-long affair in Shanghai. And there, talk about public-private partnerships. I mean, they're getting serious about this EV stuff. They've sort of said, signaled that they might name a date certain to phase out fossil fuels, which is sending a shiver up the spine of all the OEMs and oil companies in the world. And, you know, you walk around the streets of Shanghai and there's EVs everywhere. Every two-wheeled vehicle is now electric. And there are charging units that are being put in under these public-private partnerships with cities. And they're being managed by this incredible software, some of which comes out of startups here in the States that, you know, mediate the the impacts on the feeder distribution and all the rest of it. So just, you know... I don't want to say a cautionary tale because I think it's really exciting, but a note that as we go towards this cleaner energy future, China is driving hard and plans to, to run this one, is demonstrating great success at that. They did 11 gigawatts of solar in the month of July this year, 11 gigawatts in a month. Um, so, you know, we in America just for the you know, comparison did 16 last year, the whole year. So, you know, we've got some competition, but we can keep going. And the good news for all of you out there is clean energy is happening. It's coming to pass. And then, of course, uh, Joel, the, the highlight of that day for me was um, your conversation with Van Jones, the, the co-founder of DreamCore. I, I, it, when you think about inclusivity, when you think about the things that we're doing right and the things that we could better he really articulated that for me um, in his session with you. Well, one of the things we talked about was we began the conversation with when I first met Van uh, about 15 years ago, and he was talking about green jobs, not jails. And, and it was like, what? You know, here's this uh, African American uh, Yale educated lawyer um, uh, standing in this case, it was in a classroom at, at, at UC Berkeley, talking about you know, connecting the environmental movement. With the and the clean economy, with the justice movement and the the poverty and crime of, of inner cities, and saying you know, and the, and what he called the the uh, uh, incarceration industrial complex, uh, that we there's all connected, and and at least in terms of the potential solutions and how do we create this burgeoning green economy? This is the early 2000s um, that enables to that lifts people out of poverty and provides all these benefits to the planet and and over the past uh, 15 years he's gone through this pretty remarkable journey best-selling author uh obama uh green energy czar then got uh sort of glenn beck to fox news out of um out of that position had to leave and uh and went on and so regrouped and started dream core which is includes green for all and a group called cut 50 which is about elim- reducing the uh prison population in half uh by i think 2030 that he co-founded or it was inspired 
on working with Newt Gingrich uh, when he and uh, and Van were, uh, were were on Crossfire together, CNN's show. So um, it's, and now he's back talking about green jobs, mm-hmm. not jails. And so I asked him sort of about this journey. And um, you know, I knew parts of the story. I'd seen him. I've known him for a long time. But he told it in really starkly personal na- nature, and it was very touching. But you know, in the spirit of, of the whole Verge conference, uh, he. Uh, imbued uh, this world that he still sees it. I mean, it's just so problematic in terms of uh, how many uh, young men of color and, and people in general are incarcerated and then they can't get jobs when they get out. So they have to go back to their old ways that ends up back in jail. And and, and he gave us so much hope, so much uh, a view of, of a different path of what's possible and what is the the role, the responsibility, and the opportunity for the corporate sector to step up. So uh, I'm not sure what clip from Van you've lined up here, uh, but um, uh, I'm sure it'll be just a taste of the great 25-minute uh, conversation we had. I was in trying to get my own health pulled together, living in Oakland and then going to Marin County for meditation and all that stuff. And going back and forth, going back and forth and seeing, wait a minute, is this ecological apartheid? I mean, I'm literally going from cancer clusters and and no jobs to solar panels and hybrid cars and hybrid buses and salads, you know, all kind of stuff. And (laughs) so... It was such a wild experience to go from doing those urban fights to then going to Marin County and realizing this whole green economy was, was growing. And I saw it strictly as, wait a minute, hold on a second. You, you're going to be growing all these new companies, new products, new services. You need some workers. I've got young people out here who need jobs. Well, why don't we let the people who most need work do the work that most needs to be done? And we can fight pollution and poverty at the same time. And that brought me back. I mean, it, it, was, a, it was a personal salvation. And, and that, that, I mean, literally, I was going across the bridge back to Oakland. And I said, we need green jobs, not jails. And it just grabbed me. It was an idea that just grabbed me. And we wound up getting the Green Jobs Corps going in Oakland. Nancy Pelosi came over, saw it, thought it was amazing, took me to Washington, D.C., we got a guy named George W. Bush to sign a bill called the Green Jobs Act, uh, 2007, wrote a book, 2008, bestseller, six languages, 100 U.S. universities, a guy named Barack Obama read the book, and suddenly we're off, and then you deal with the backlash. And people act like the backlash just started in November, but the backlash against um, you know, the progress and the hopes and the dreams of 2008 started in 2008. It's a tale of two movements. I mean, one of the things that I think you guys have an opportunity to do something about is that we still have this almost, it's an embarrassment and it's tough to talk about, but we almost have a racially segregated environmental movement in that we have what we call mainstream environmentalism, which are the organizations that we all know, we all love, we all support, but they have $100 million budgets and their constituencies are overwhelmingly white and affluent. And then we have what we call environmental justice, EJ. And these groups are almost entirely uh, people of color. And if they have a half a million dollar budget, they're doing huge. 
I mean, these groups are lucky to have a $20,000, $40,000. So you have this, uh, we're the only cause I know of that accepts this sort of racial division inside of our movement. We don't talk about it. And environmental justice in particular is really concerned with equal protection from bad stuff. Because, uh, you know, don't, the dirty secret is you can't hurt the planet without hurting people. And the people that you hurt are usually the poorest. So the, the, who lives next to the dumps? Who lives next to the incinerators? Who lives next to the refineries? Who, who has the, the most you know, lead poisoning? Always the poorest. So if you protect the poorest, you're protecting the planet because it's the poor people that always get dumped on. You guys are in a situation where you can go beyond even that. It's not just about equal protection, but also about equal opportunity. In other words, why should those communities that were hit first and worst for everything bad in the old industrial pollution-based economy. Why should those very same communities that got hit first and worst on the bad stuff then benefit last and least for all the good stuff? Because it's good stuff. So, so to me, that's the big opportunity that we still have, is to say, listen, we do have now this takeoff, a, a, a second takeoff now uh, in the green sectors, and there's a second opportunity now to make sure it includes people. And finally, we had an amazing speaker wrap up the event. She's doing so many incredible things at Apple and actually getting them to talk about it, which is in itself <laughs> a, a, major, a major achievement. But um, Joel, your conversation with Lisa Jackson. Well, Lisa, this is her third time on The Verge stage, and she's always um, has some really interesting things to say. And I uh, won't, won't get into the whole conversation, but the, the beginning of the conversation uh, I think was kind of cool because we talked about the launch last week of the the new the new iPhones uh, the, the eight and the ten, and um, from the environmental perspective, and that wasn't something that we'd heard anything about. And uh, turns out there's a pretty good story there. So let's listen in on what she had to say about that. The two iPhones we just announced have six percent less carbon emissions per phone than um, previous generations, and that is a result of our supplier clean energy program. You know, for every single phone we release, we put out a product environment report. It's on apple.com slash environment. And a 6% reduction due to your, mainly through a supplier, uh, suppliers greening their supply chain is really, you know, proof for everyone out there working on value chain work and trying to extend the influence of the company. Or maybe you're in someone's value chain. It really, really matters. So some of the barriers are technology-driven. I mean, to really enable the circular economy for consumer electronics, you have to remake some of the way we, we process material. It wasn't designed to reuse tons of material. Um, and so not only do you have to remake it, but you have to make it cost effective. I mean, I, I think the problem with just saying jump and how high is, yeah, anybody can do anything, but um, it costs money. And we have to be willing to pay that extra money. And Apple has a long history of driving a supply chain to not only um, produce, but to produce really efficiently and effectively. We certainly believe we can make a market. Um, and so I think one barrier is technology. Another barrier is it has to be cost, I mean, uh, one, one opportunity, if you will, challenge is to make it cost effective. And that's not going to be the truth on day one. You know, when Apple moved to take PVC out of our power cords, they weren't cost effective on day one. First, we had to figure out how to do it. Then we had to find suppliers who would do it with us. And then because they knew we would be the market, they came along. 
Um, the last piece of that, though, is you know, a little bit my old job. It would also be nice if then governments say, let's move to this standard, this PVC halogen-free cord, instead of allowing, you know, competitors to come in with cheaper alternatives. I think that the private sector can take it so far. I think that there is a role for government, especially around standard setting. I think that, um, and this is, you know, funny coming from a former regulator, but it's actually better when government allows the innovations to happen and not pick winners up front. Uh, so the places where, um, and I tried to do this at, at EPA as well, the places where you make the best policy is where you, you know, encourage and almost create a market for an innovation, like a scrubber on a power plant that wouldn't exist. The technology exists, but nobody's going to put it on if you don't ask them to do it. Um, very few companies will. A few leadership companies will, but then you have all these other people sort of sliding underneath the line. Um, China is a great example. China has said we want to see our skies blue. That means less pollution. That means um, addressing the threat of climate change and continuing to stay uh, in the Paris Accords, and therefore companies are signing up. I'm joined by Anya Hallmeiser, our associate editor, and one of Anya's assignments at Verge this week was to speak with people about their circular economy strategies. So I guess the first thing is, well, thank you for joining us, Anya. Um, and the first thing I want to know is, you know, how much of a buzz was it at, at the show? I mean, is this something that people are finally getting their arms around? We talk about it. Um, but do you think that the, the sustainability community is finally wrapping their arms around this concept in a practical way? Yes, absolutely. Um, from the conversations that were heard during, for example, the first day of the conference, there was a circular materials summit and there were representatives, uh, sustainability managers from um, auto manufacturers, tech companies, and, and more. And across all sectors, there were some very interesting solutions about the way that the circular economy is being embedded within the entire value chain of some products. Um, and most importantly, that it, it's implemented along the entire management of a company. For example, one manufacturer um, was trying to sell its excess materials to an auto manufacturer, uh, said that their journey started off fairly easy and they realized that the first 50 to 75 percent of the process was fairly easy but when it got down to the details that last 15 to 10 percent was it took them eight months to formulate for example um, they had uh, big uh, swaths of material that they had to right size in order to sell them to the manufacturer otherwise they just wouldn't fit in a truck for transportation once they made that product more dense, they were able to fit more of it per truckload and actually ended up saving money and transporting and selling more of it. So that's just one example. And of course, the concept of circularity does not apply just to companies, it applies to cities. And we had a terrific panel of, um, of experts that are trying to bring more practical applications. But really, actually, what does that mean for, for cities? I think it was a great example and a great definition. Um, here's Ashima Sukhdev from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation to tell us what it's about. I think there's a few elements. Um, first and foremost, it's, it's obviously applying circular economy principles to urban systems. Um, it's 
cities that are actually designing out waste from their urban systems. Um, and that's not just material waste, it's also things like underutilized assets and infrastructures in that city. Um, if you kind of break that down a bit and think about the built environment, for example, it's um, in cities, how can you actually build flexible, modular um, infrastructure? How can you uh, use efficient construction practices? How can you use the right materials in those buildings? Um, and how can, you, how can you make sure that once those buildings are actually built, they um, are being used effectively and not just sitting empty most of the time? As you said earlier, one of the features of the Verge Conference are these half-day working summits. We did three of them this year, one on healthy and adaptive buildings, one on circular materials, and one on urban mobility, kind of different uh, types of events. And here to talk about that is the woman who put them all together, co-facilitated all of them, and really is the driving force behind the Verge Summits, my friend and colleague, Shauna Rappaport. Hey, Shauna. Hi, Joel. You hanging in? Hanging in. We're in the final home stretch, but things are mostly going great. Good. So give us a flavor. Why do summits? We've got main stage, we've got breakouts, we've got all workshops. Why do these summits? Yeah, well, the spirit of these is really about creating a different kind of sort of context and experience for, for Verge attendees. You know, the value of, I think, Verge events in general beyond the learning and the information is uh, is the networking. And this is a, a really curated and highly participatory opportunity for people to connect with a really focused group of peers, but across, as is the nature of Verge, a very diverse spectrum of industries and sectors, and in a context that allows them to really, in a way, everyone in the room is a speaker. It's about everyone bringing their knowledge and experience. Well, let's paint the picture. I had the great privilege of co-facilitating the Circular Materials one with you. And uh, we have, what, 75 people in the room. They're sitting at tables of about four people at a table. Uh, there's a, a panel at the beginning. We call it the foundational panel to sort of set the, the tone. And then people get down to work. So what, what kind of work did they do? What, are they, what were they trying to address? Yeah, well, everyone in these rooms, and you, you said it right, we had just about 75 people in each of these rooms, and everyone there was either invited or had requested invitations and was approved. So it was a highly curated group of people. And, you know, we have guiding focal questions that are really kind of big picture, but also very practical. What does it take questions around topics like advancing more circular, uh, circular economies or healthy and adaptive buildings? And today we're going to be diving into urban mobility, really looking at what it takes to enable clean and efficient mo mobility of both people and goods. And so we designed these programs over about a four, four hour and a half uh, window, four and a half hour window um, to kind of create an arc of an experience for people to both dive into really specific challenges where they have a chance to self-select. And this year we actually did something a bit different um, really in direct response to some of the feedback that we received last year, rather than staying kind of high level looking at the role of policy or the role of data or infrastructure, actually working with industry leaders to serve as discussion hosts and in advance supporting them in developing what we called stories from the field. So we're actually grounding these sessions and real work being done on the ground. Can you give me an example of a story from the field or just some of what the, the stories might have been like uh, from 
one or more of the summits? Yeah. I mean, taking our Circular Materials Summit, we had such a fascinating and broad spectrum, right? We had Jeff Denby from the Renewal Workshop looking at the um, sort of what it takes to create, repair, refurbish, and upgrade economies. We had folks from I mean, literally ranging from steel case in the building and furniture world to uh, CNA and, and kind of what it's taken for them to launch a circular uh, product at scale. And so even within each of these groups was a, a sort of a microcosm. We had people from different industries and sectors, but learning hopefully replicable models of value no matter what the industry is in which you're operating. And in each of these uh, stories from the field were we're all stories in progress because none of, nobody's figured these things out. They're all, you know, we, we've done this, but we it's just the beginning and we're still grappling with th- these uh, one or two or three things or five things. And, and, and it was really, the spirit of the room is really quite remarkable. And so um, what comes out of these? Well, you know, just your comment about the spirit of the room makes me chuckle thinking about yesterday. I had probably one of the most significant facilitation challenges of my life in our Healthy Adaptive Building Summit. I could not get people to stop their working sessions. It was time to go to our networking break. And people were having such rich, robust, in-depth conversations with either old friends or new friends. Business cards were flying. I mean, it was literally... It was um, really what this work is all about. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's a good sign when people don't want to stop doing work in order to take a break and have coffee and socialize. I mean, it really is uh, people don't get a chance to dig in. Uh, as deeply as as they they they'd like to, with uh, particularly with pr- with fresh perspectives, uh, with fresh eyes coming from people who they don't normally get to talk to, and and it really is valuable. People come away just I don't know whether how much it rocks their world or changes their lives, but but they certainly get some some great stuff out of that. Well, and to your point about what comes next, you know, I think in some ways it's it's so hard to measure, right? We saw business cards flying, we saw connections being made. I've already heard several stories of seeds that were planted about things that major companies or early stage entrepreneurs are going to be doing differently. So um, I, I, I really do believe that meaningful outcomes are going to come out of this and I, and I hope that we're going to, we're going to actually he- hear some of the fruits of, of the labors of these. We'll look forward to picking those fruits and uh, Kudos to you, Shauna, for the incredible work you hand-built these, one participant, one discussion host, one theme at a time, and I got to, to work with you a little bit and, and just saw how you how you made that magic happen. So thanks for that, Shauna Rappaport. Thanks. thanks for your partnership, Joel. Thank you. So Verge was not the only event taking place this past week. There's a small event taking place on the other side of the country called Climate Week New York City. And we had our correspondent Alec Applebaum on the scene going to the events. Uh, and here he is on the phone. Hello, Alec. Hey, Joel. How's it going? It's going great. Um, so give me a sense of of Climate Week. I mean, this is the first Climate Week since the uh, Trump-Paris pullout. Uh, what's the business community talking about? Did they, are they all still in? The business community is all still in, and a lot of these events starred some of the heaviest hitters in business, PepsiCo, talking about trucking and PG&E and Ikea and some others joining what's called the EV100, really ramping up uh, use of electric cars and charging stations. Uh, My sense is that Trump is sort of 
and irritant more than anything else that business leaders see China electrifying vehicles uh, by 2040, they say, a huge demand going up for clean and green fuels in Europe. It would not make business sense to do anything other than decarbonize. And, and so are companies doing this in spite of Trump or because of Trump, or is this he's not even a factor? Uh, it's hard to say whether what Trump says is a factor, in part because, as a lot of people said, what Trump says changes so much from day to day. Uh, Tom Cochran from the U.S. Conference of Mayors said uh, in, in one of his talks with some folks from cities, you know, he's talking, he's tweeting, he's waving his arms. God knows what else he's going to do. Uh, I would say as people in the business community and in cities and states said right after Trump's announcement, uh, there is momentum toward decarbonizing and clean fuel uh, that declarations can't really undo. And, you know, somebody else made the point, the governor of Washington state, if the U.S. administration were still in the Paris Agreement, it's manifest that the Trump administration would do nothing to move the ball down the road. And then there's the city side where we've got mayors uh, across and subnational governments in general uh, across the United States and around the world that are stepping up on, on and are still in. So they're decarbonizing. What's the business response there? Do you see that there are some kinds of businesses that are best positioned to work with businesses? Who, who's leading or innovating around that? Sure. Well, there's a lot of momentum on what's called green finance or sustainable finance. The idea of a green bond has a lot of leverage. It is not a particularly new idea, but Moody's, the rating agency, is making a little bit of a splash with its effort to incorporate, there's a lot of alphabet soup here, uh, what it calls ESG, environmental and social and governance criteria, into all of its uh, ratings, and that affects the creditworthiness of cities and states and the interest that they have to pay on debt. So finance, transportation, uh, electrification of fleets is another big opportunity for working with cities. AECOM, the big engineering firm, uh, also showed up at a number of panels uh, talking about doing infrastructure more sustainably, that is, more efficiently and with longer lifetimes for Project. I'm kind of curious about some of these companies that are uh, on these panels that are, you know, some of there's always some, a few companies that are ubiquitous. Uh, are they actually, is it just sort of waving their arms saying this is what we're doing and we're doing this, that, and the other thing? Or are they actually imparting wisdom in terms of what it takes to get things done to accelerate change at the scale, scope, and speed that's needed? Yeah, that's, that's my question as well. Uh, it's not fair to say people are waving their arms. There are detailed plans coming from a lot of these corporations. But, you know, the case of PepsiCo is a good example. They showed up at a panel with Richard Branson and some others on improving energy efficiency in trucks. There's an article on GreenBiz about this this week. Uh, through some advances in fuel and efficiency on the operation of the trucks, you can get up to 10 miles per gallon on a truck fleet, which I didn't know beforehand is actually a major improvement from what was industry standard a few years back, which was four. Uh, Dave O'Connell, who runs the supply chain business at PepsiCo, told me there's an existing corporate commitment to reduce greenhouse gases by 20%, I think, by 2020. I said, what happens when you meet that goal? Uh, because I thought they probably set that goal because they knew they could meet it. And he said, well, we set the bar higher and we keep improving. So, uh, you know, I think the story is that it is good long-term strategy to get rid of the cost and the risk associated with burning fossil fuel and companies that want to do well in the world market are trying to 
get the upper hand on companies that want to follow the lead of the president. So what's the overall sense of, of urgency? Is there one? Their companies feel like their time is uh, wasting away? and Or is this sort of feel like, you know, just continuous improvement as we've seen over the years? Uh, definitely more the latter. There is some recognition, especially after the hurricanes, that climate change is upon us. But the rhetoric and positioning from a lot of the speakers is still about moving the ball forward. There's the sense we have this figured out. We know what we need to do. Uh, Jay Inslee, who's the governor of Washington, was on a panel yesterday at a session heralding the EV100 initiative. He said, uh, you know, it was intended as an applause line and, and people definitely received it uh, sympathetically, but didn't get up out of their chairs. He said, there's no way that Donald Trump can stop the United States from becoming a leader in a low carbon future. You know, he tried to wave the white flag of surrender and we will continue to fight climate change. The prevailing tone that I saw was much calmer than that. Even so confident. in that prevailing tone, the last question is, does it feel optimistic being there? Does it feel kind of sad and pessimistic? What's the general zeitgeist there? Uh, it really depends. You know, I think uh, I think your feeling about Climate Week depends on your feeling going in. You could certainly take a lot of heart from the strides that a lot of these big companies are making. PG&E, the uh, utility in California, shared that their uh, fuel, their electricity is 70% greenhouse gas free already. Uh, that's a major threshold. It's hard to deny that there's a lot of progress being made in things that seemed like pipe dreams five or 10 years ago, electric cars. And, and uh, we've talked many times about solar and wind becoming mainstream sources. At the same time, you know, the events in the Caribbean are scary. And I didn't hear a lot of people with sort of a full-throated cry to change the way we do everything and, uh, you know, batten down the hatches to decarbonize above all else. But I think maybe that's because businesses are decarbonizing if they can afford to uh, and are confident that others will follow. So it sounds uh, typical, a little bit of hope, a little bit of fear, and uh, just keep moving forward. So uh, Alec Apple, Yeah, on we go. Alec Applebaum, uh, thanks for uh, being our correspondent this week in New York. My pleasure. Thank you. Throughout this podcast, you've been hearing some clips from DJ Spooky. That's the stage name of a guy called Paul Dennis Miller. I think I like DJ Spooky a little bit better. Uh, it's Washington, D.C.-born electronic and experimental hip-hop musician who uh, also has some things to say about uh, uh, sustainability and climate. And we featured him both in, in, in on stage as, as a, uh, giving a talk and then... Uh, playing some music, and then hosting the Verge After Dark Party and DJing that. And that's our 350 podcast for this week from the Verge Conference. We're going to fade out with some music, uh, more music from DJ Spooky. You can, uh, as always, go to greenbiz.com 350 to find more about the organization, stories, and events we've mentioned in this episode. And we're going to be playing more clips from the Verge Conference next week and maybe even the week after. We've got a lot of rich material. As always, send us email at 350greenbiz.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks to GreenBiz 350 director Stephanie Joyce and as always to GreenBiz managing editor Elsa Wenzel. We'll be back next week for another edition of GreenBiz 350.
from all of us here at Green Biz Group and at Verge 2017. I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. <laughs>